So some of you in my earlier session when I talked a little bit about power dynamics within relationships, and essentially, you don't need to have been there to understand this one, it'll be absolutely fine. But this, I want to talk about when we see the misuse and the abuse of power around us in relationships, in church, in families, in the workplace, wherever that might be, because increasingly we're hearing stories about stuff that's gone on that nobody ever did anything about whether that's a relate a relational thing whether it's a marriage or there's been domestic abuse whether it's something going on within a church where there's been you know, horrific abuse of some of the scandals that have come out or whether it's something that feels a bit more subtle and yet it feels like people are being controlled or they're like what do we do and, and all of this came out of a conversation i had with Ree when we were away at something else entirely and, and just a conversation about how do you do it? What do you do? You know, I can see this is going on, but is it my place to step in? I don't know. It's not really like, am I just interfering? What does it look like? And, and what's going on? And, and there's a story in the Bible where we see some of the, the interplay of this going on in a way. And, and, not, and nobody does anything, basically. We can all go and that's what happens. That's a spoiler alert. Nobody does anything. It's all terrible. Um, but, but actually, this story gives us all these opportunities to go, how could it, what, what could have changed the course of the story? What could have made it a better ending? What could have made everything be transformed from where it is? But it is a bit of a horrible story. So I just want to do a, a bit of, it's not a spoiler alert at all. This is just a bit of a trigger warning, really, because we are going to look at some, some areas of the world that, you know, we don't often preach on. This is one of those stories that gets brushed over or swept under the carpet. Um, because it's not nice, and, and for some of us, it might trigger some things in our heads that aren't very nice. And so I want to give you permission to zone out, stick fingers in your ears, close your eyes, leave the room. I also want to say, if someone leaves the room, they might just be going for a wee. <laughs> so we're not going to assume that they're traumatised. So we're just going to go, they're probably going for a wee, and that's totally fine. So just with that in mind, bear that in mind, and I shan't, I shan't worry at all if I can see you're scrolling on your phone, it's a good distraction. That is totally fine. But now you can't scroll in your phone. Because <laughs> uh, you're not just going for a week, that is just scrolling. Unless you are. Anyway, but this story I want to look at is a story of Amnon and Tamar that we find in the book of 2 Samuel. And it's a horrible story. And I'm, gonna, I'm not going to read it through because that will take <laughs> genuinely take half the time that we have. Because it's quite a long story. I'll flick through it. But essentially, it's the story of two of King David's children. And one of them, Amnon, is a powerful prince, and he sees his sister Tamar, and essentially what happens is that he wants her. He, he thinks he's fallen in love with her, he calls her to his room, he rapes her, and it's the story of what happens next. And I'm going to jump over the detail of that. You can find the story if you want it in 2 Samuel 13, but I am going to jump over it now, because I think, because I'm, I'm going to be hinting back at it, just like, it's quite long. If I'd have read all of this, we'd have still been here at six, and we'd just skipped dinner. And we get to the end and we discover what is going on. Because actually, this story isn't the end. This is still not the end of the story. Hold on. So I want to look at the characters that we find within this story. Because there are a whole bunch of different characters that come into play at this story where Tamar, this woman, ends up rejected. She ends up desolate. You know, she ends up, you know, somebody who's not fit for marriage for the rest of her life. She ends up in a palace somewhere else. So... At the start of this story, we begin to see what's really going on at the interplay of everything that's going on in this palace and what's going, you know, everything else. And the, start, the story starts with her being really objectified. So she's not a person, she's been turned into a thing. Because the Bible tells us in verse 2 that Amnon became so 
obsessed with her. Now, obsession is never a good word, is it? Like, obsession, unless it's a perfume, and then it's quite nice. <laughs> That's all right. Although, actually, it doesn't smell nice for me. It's not, it makes it smell weird. But anyway, obsession is not a good thing. Being obsessed with something means that, actually, you have become so consumed with it, so taken over with it, that this isn't about caring for somebody. This isn't about loving somebody. This isn't about <coughs> wanting the best for somebody. This is about obsession. This is about needing your next fix. This is what I want. This is what I think. And everything for Amnon has become about what he needs and requires from this woman in his life. I need her. I must have her. It must be the way that I want it. She is utterly ignored in this story. Because in the story, a little bit earlier on, he, he's conspired with his, with, his, um, with his cousin, actually, and his, and his servants. And they've had Tamar brought into the room. And they said, I'll tell you what you should do. You should bring... I probably should just have read the story to you. But anyway, essentially what they do is his cousin says, yeah, I'll tell you what you could do. Why don't you pretend to be sick? Pretend to be sick. Ask Tamar to come and make bread because she makes amazing bread. And then when she's in the room, then, you can do whatever you want. Then, then she's in the room. You've got all the power. You can do whatever you want. So she comes into the room and she comes because she loves her brother. And she comes in and she makes the bread. And then her brother sends all the servants out of the room. And she's left alone with him. And then he says, why don't you come a little bit closer? Come sit on the edge of my bed. Or you just get in a little bit closer still. And she goes, no, my brother, you shouldn't do such a terrible thing. You shouldn't do such a terrible thing. And he 100% ignores her. In fact, the Bible tells us twice that he refused to listen to her. So she's been objectified. And now she's been silenced. You've got no voice. What you want, what you desire, how you feel, how you fear makes no difference whatsoever and then she's deceived you see at the beginning he's come in and he's pretended i'm so sick i'm so poorly i'm so sure i've got a fever it's not just man flu like he's just completely and utterly faking it she's been objectified she's been totally ignored and she's been deceived and finally she becomes overpowered since he was stronger than her he raped her. We talked about power in the last session and the different types of power that we can have. And actually, one of the ones we didn't talk about was physical power. Just by your sheer size, just by your sheer strength, actually just by being born a man and being you know, physically different to women, there's this extraordinary power that men have. And he takes that power and he diminishes her power by using his power to take her. It's an extraordinarily terrible thing. All of these things are abuse. And she was shamed because the minute he finished with her, he sends her from his room. And it says in the Bible that actually afterwards he hated her more than he'd loved her. I'd argue he never loved her. He just wanted her. He just fancied her. He just thought she looked fit. And he wanted her. Get up and get out. And so in the midst, everything that he had done that was evil in that moment, he took and he transferred and he poured that shame upon her. And he transferred everything over and he projected it all onto her. He made her the object of his disgust instead of recognising that he needed actually to be quite disgusted at his own behaviour and what had gone on within his heart and within his mind and then within his body. So she has now been shamed even though there was nothing for her to be ashamed of whatsoever. But then what happens next actually is even worse. When we read through the story of the Bible and we follow the narrative through Tamar goes rushing back to her quarters within the palace and she comes across her other brother, Absalom. 
And Absalom brings her in and she pours out her heart and tells him all that has gone on. And this is what he has to say to her. Shh, be quiet. Be quiet. He's your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. Can you imagine? She's been silenced by one brother because he refused to listen. And now the other brother is actively saying, don't talk about it. Hush up. Let's just not tell anyone. Let's sweep this under the carpet. Let's pretend it didn't happen. Let's minimise what happened. It's not that bad. Don't make such a fuss. Anybody who's ever been on the receiving end of someone going, oh, it's not all that bad, knows what it means to be minimised like that. To have somebody go, you're making, you're making a mountain out of a molehill. You're making, oh, you're just exaggerating how terrible this has been. And it's something that we see with people who've been the victims of abuse. People try, because trying to deal with the enormity of abuse is overwhelming. Actually, sometimes this is a self-protection thing. We try and minimise it because if it's not that bad, it doesn't feel that bad for me either. But actually, by telling that to the person who's experienced it, who's been subjected to it, that's a terribly abusive thing, actually, to fit in and to do there. But Tamar is a character within this. She's been objectified. She's been diminished. She's been overpowered. She's been shamed. She's been all of these things. But she's an extraordinary character, nevertheless. You see, Tamar, I think, is extraordinarily brave. Because bravery doesn't always mean that you're able to be strong and all the rest, but she's incredibly brave. It says she was wearing an ornate robe, for this was the kind of garment the virgin daughters of the king wore. Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the ornate robe she was wearing. She put her hands on her head and she went away, weeping aloud as she went. Tamar didn't try to hide what had happened to her. Tamar spoke up. I think it's really easy sometimes in the world to underestimate the strength it takes to publicly let people know when something like this has happened. Because, because of the weight of the shame that people feel wrongly, because of the fear of what people's judgment will be like, people often never tell anyone. We don't tell anyone for years. <coughs> Speak up. To, pub to do something so public. She's not trying to hide what happened to her. She's not colluding with her brother and going, oh, you yeah, know, we'll both pretend this didn't happen. Suits me, so I'll never get married again. She sits there and she publicly, openly, lets everybody know that a terrible disaster has happened. It's extraordinarily brave. We must never underestimate how much courage it takes to do that. She's extraordinary. But the reality is, a story like this is dreadful. And stories like this are happening all around the country, all around the world, all of the time. We've had some horrible statistics in the news over the last year. In fact, it's almost exactly a year now since the death of Sarah Everard. It happened in the news. It hit all our headlines about this time last year. And the outpouring of grief that followed was extraordinary, actually. And, you know, doing the job that I do, working with survivors of domestic abuse, speaking about violence against women and girls, I paid real attention. Because we had this moment. And I felt it was a little bit like that moment after George Floyd got murdered. You know, when suddenly the whole world went, this is outrageous, this can't keep happening, this must stop. And George Floyd wasn't the first black man to be killed by a police officer. He wasn't the first black man to be the recipient of, you know, racial hatred. He wasn't, and yet for some reason his story captured the world's attention and brought a whole movement to light. It was extraordinary. And this time last year we had a very similar moment with Sarah Everard, where one girl walking home, you know, not even very late at night, in perfectly ordinary clothes, you know, we shouldn't make any difference whatsoever to the way we think about it, and yet it does. 
You know, she was walking home and she got kidnapped, she got raped and she got killed. It was awful. It was so awful. And something in us went, this must never happen again. And women were getting together on Clapham Common and holding vigils and people were carrying placards. And Sarah Everard wasn't the first girl to get killed. She certainly wasn't. Like, probably not even that week, let alone, you know, that year. It was just, but it was this moment when we all came like, this has to stop happening. And then over the rest of the year, we discovered some other terrible things that have been going on. You know, in, just within our country, in June, Ofsted released a report that said there is a rape culture in our schools. A rape culture. Now, what that means is that within our schools, the culture is such that girls <coughs> expect to be sexually harassed. Girls expect to be sexually assaulted. It's just the norm. It's nothing to make a fuss about because it's just the way that it is. That's all, that feels like we've gone backwards, not forwards with society and culture. It feels like the world's gone mad. There was another report that came out this time last year that said that 97% of women aged 18 to 26 will be, not might be, will be sexually harassed. Like, it's, you know, like that's, that's all girls. And actually, you stop when you think, I wouldn't mind betting in a room like this. Even more than 97% of us have experienced that at some point in our lives. Whether it was an unwelcome comment or the way that somebody just talked about, you know, talked about our hair, you know, right through to being pushed into a corner or felt up or something. Like, it's just going on all around us all of, our, all of the time. And we see it in the relationships around us. We hear people talking about other people in a way that's not kind. We see that somebody actually over here doesn't seem to have very much independence. There's that couple at church who are just worried, just worried, actually, that maybe there's a big fat control thing going on over there. Just the way that that person talks about the other one. I was just not really very comfortable. And yet in the middle of us, we can sit there and go, but we're British. We don't interfere. We don't stick our nose in where it's not wanted. How do we respond to these situations? What do we do? How do stories like this happen? And how critically do we stop it? You see, some of what we need to recognise is the characters within this story. You see, the first character is Amnon. And there are some things here that are really quite straightforward. <laughs> Amnon is not a very nice man. Let's just, let's just put that out there. It's quite straightforward. You know, but first, one and two talks about he fell in love with Tamar. I've already said it. He was not in love. Another word beginning with L, but it wasn't love. He was so obsessed, like he just had, he just lusted after her. He was just, it was all about him feeling entitled, really important word, he felt entitled to have whatever he wanted, no matter what happened. He wanted to be in control, he wanted to get what he desired. He wanted her, he was going to have her. And then he abused his power and all the power that he had. When she said, no, my brother, don't do this thing, don't force me, I'm sure there's a way around this, even if you marry me, and that's weird, but even then, that would be better than this. But he makes her voices, he abuses all of that power that he had as a man, <coughs> as somebody who is stronger, as somebody who's got all the title and, and power that goes with it being a prince. And he takes that, and he's got such a power imbalance in this relationship. Through the last session, we talked about that. <coughs> such a huge power imbalance. And he just takes that and runs with it, and he uses all the power that he's got and, and makes her useless. And then he projects all of his hatred upon her. He hated her more than he'd loved her. Right? Because the reality didn't match up with his fantasy. He'd, been, he'd spent weeks, months maybe, fantasising about this moment, what it was going to be like, what he wanted. Of course, the reality's never the same. You know, we see that all the time in the world we live in with pornography and the, the impact that has on relationships all over the place. 
But because it didn't match up, because the feelings inside of him actually were probably self-hatred, he projects it all upon her. And she sends him away. You carry on. I'm going to flip through this one. And then you get Jonadab. Jonadab's his cousin. And like one of his special advisors. One of his special people. And here we get a character that had the power to do something different. Jonadab colludes with Amnon. When Amnon comes and says, do you know what, my sister, she's all right. Jonadab's reaction is to come up with a plan. He's a very shrewd man. Why don't we play about it like this? Why, you know, why don't you tell me what's wrong with you? And then he says, why don't you go to bed and pretend to be ill? So Jonadab's reaction to all of this is to be part of it. That's how stories like this happen. They don't happen because one man's evil. They happen because the whole society gets involved. And Jonadab takes his role as advisor and his cousin, and he gets involved by saying, I've got a plan, I know I can do this. And you can almost imagine him saying it. I've worked in senior schools. <laughs> I can imagine the lads gearing each other up, go, well, why don't you? You know, I've sat on buses before now and heard one guy, you know, either going, oh, she's all right, why don't you go and talk to her? Why don't you do this? You know, and you can see them egging it on, whether it's a girl they, they want to go and talk to or whether it's an old lady that they want to intimidate. And you can imagine that kind of like gang, gang, you know, culture going on amongst themselves. And then there's another character in this story that I think has a really big part to play, and that's Amnon and Absalom's dad. See, King David is described in the Bible as a man after God's own heart, but he's also a man who makes some really extraordinary mistakes. And the story that comes before this story in the Bible is the story of David and Bathsheba, which I think is really interesting and really significant. And for those of you who might not know the story of David and Bathsheba, essentially what happens is that King David, who's already got his own wife, essentially, one day is still on top of you know, the castle walls, the palace walls, and he sees this woman her taking a bath within her compound far away. And he really likes the look of her. This is Bathsheba. And he calls her in to visit. And he has sex with her. Now, the Bible isn't very explicit. And the way this story is told is often like some great love story. But the truth is... The power that King David held and the power that a woman just coming in from down the road held, that's probably rape. But he brings her in and then he discovers that she's married and then he discovers that she's pregnant but her husband's on the battlefront. And in a long story cut short, he arranges for her husband to be killed to try and cover it all up, to make it all okay. And Bathsheba becomes his wife. That's what's going on in Amnon's family at the same time that he's beginning to look at his sister. The culture that has been set within that palace has not been teaching Amnon a better way. He has grown up. He has watched his dad take what he wants. He's watched his dad go through extraordinary measures to get away with it. And then it's in the light of that, it's in the, it's in the precedent of that, that actually he goes, well, this, is what, this is what boys do. This is what boys with power do. This is what princely royalty does. We get what we want and we take it. It's extraordinary I've talked without actually looking at my things oh yeah let's flip through that and then King David's useless frankly for a man who's thrown an extraordinary power and who has you know militarily taken all of this land and done extraordinary things killed Goliath killed Philistines left right and centre it says in 2 Samuel 13 when King David heard what's happened between Amnon and Tamar he did nothing nothing I mean, you could kind of imagine being frozen by 
oh my goodness, this is both my children. What on earth do I do? You can imagine that I've got no idea what to do. But he was the king. He was the father. It was his job to do something. Even if he needed to take time out to have a think about it. Even if he needed to go and find wise counsel. Even if he needed to go and fast and pray for three days. He didn't do any of the things. The Bible sometimes he did any single one of those things. He just did nothing. He was furious, but he did nothing. Lots of anger, lots of emotion. People can be very good at showing lots of emotion and they're not really doing anything. Looking like they really, really care, but they're not actually really doing anything. It's worth watching out for that. The other reason this story ends up as miserable as it does is Absalom. So this is the other brother. They're half-brothers, they're not, they're not whole brothers, they don't even like each other very much. But his solution to the situation is to cover up and to minimise all that is going on. Has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? Be quiet now, my sister, because he's your brother. Covering up and minimising it. Don't take this thing to heart, he says. Can you imagine? <laughs> I'm slapping. But don't take this thing to heart. But he does take her in and lives with her. But what happens next is this. Absalom, years later, goes out and kills Amnon, essentially. That's the short version of the story. But he doesn't sit down with him at any point and go, what would make this better for you? What would you like to happen next? How are you feeling? I'm so angry. All I want to do is put my hand on that man's neck. Would that help? That he, at no point does he sit and say, Tamar, this is your story. How do you want it to end? This is your story. What do you want the next chapter to look like? He doesn't do any of that. He just steps in and goes, my pride has been dunted. My honour has been you know, trampled all over. I must vanquish. Like, and it all becomes about this you know, masculinity that goes, I'm going to have to go and kill him. And there are even some servants in the middle of all of this story who are part of the problem. You see, in the middle of all of this, when Amnon has you know, brought Tamar in and she's sat and she's made him lovely bread, then he says, send everybody out here. And so everyone left. Everyone just went. They knew what was going on. They knew what he was going to do. They'd have, been, they'd have overheard some of these conversations. They knew it wasn't appropriate to leave you know, a woman in with a man who's lying in bed. They knew all of that. And yet everybody left. They were complicit. The servant put her out and bolted the door after her. That's what happened afterwards. When Amnon throws all his toys out the cot, when he goes, oh my goodness, you disgust me, get out. Instead of the servants going, don't treat your sister like that, which would have been a big, bold move for today. What they do is they take her and they push her out. They're complicit in all of Amnon's evil. They join in. Because just imagine if the story had been different. Like, what if Amnon had chosen to go for a run instead? What if, in that moment, you went, this is inappropriate, I better go for a run and sort myself out. Like, what a different world that would have been. What if he'd chosen to see his sister as an equal, even just a human being, frankly? Somebody whose voice mattered. Somebody whose feelings mattered, somebody whose pride mattered, somebody whose shame mattered, somebody whose anything mattered, somebody who mattered. He would never have done to her what he'd done to her. One of the things that we talk about in Restored is absolutely critical to understanding domestic abuse, any kind of abuse, is it's always 
sits at, at the bottom of it sits a, a sense of inequality. <laughs> that one person, genuinely, they might not say it out loud, they might never admit it, but they think they're more than, better than, entitled to. That's what we see with Arnold. Because if for a second he'd have recognised her as equal, if for a second he'd have seen her as important, then what happened next wouldn't have happened next. And so how do we raise our children to see other children? How do we raise them to see children of different races, different genders, different all sorts of things, different abilities, different anything? Really, really matters. Now, I used to do a lot of work in schools, and we did, a, we did masses of stuff around relationships and consent and, and all the rest of it. This is the most we teach our children to love, respect, and see each other the same as they see themselves. And you've got Jonadab. <laughs> what if Jonadab had just gone, mate, no, she's your sister? What a different world that might have been if Jonadab had just had the guts to not get caught up in that, you know, you know brotherhood conversation in the, in, the, in the locker room. You know, I always think about that, that thing that happened with Trump all the way back before, you know, that came out in his election campaign. The first one, you know, when the, 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 the thing came out about him grabbing women. Mm-hmm. And went, oh, it was just locker room talk. Just locker room talk. It must have been more done that, but it's just locker room talk. Just locker room talk. Like, locker room talk counts. It matters. It matters. And again, how are we raising our sons? How are we raising our daughters? Are we raising them to have the guts to go, mate, it's not okay. Don't talk like that. Don't talk like that about your girlfriend. Don't talk like that about your mum. Don't talk about that, like that about your mate. It's not nice. It's not all right. It matters. What for the servants? Now, like, in terms of the servants, they were servants. But their job is to do what they're told. They'd have lost their job. They could have been in huge trouble. In those days, you know, that could have been really quite frightening. But maybe they could quietly have warned her at least. Maybe they could have just have said, hey, you know, oh, I've, I've jumped one. Mm-hmm. What well, if the servants just said, look, I know you've been invited over. And we're going to make ready like you come and don't come. It's not safe. Imagine if they'd done that. Imagine if they'd better send her a note. Okay, it's, it's not a good idea. Don't come. Imagine if King David had stepped in. Even before this had happened, brought his children into the room and gone, guys, I know you know what I've done. Like, the whole country knows what I've done. It's a public humiliation, what I've done. But here are the lessons I learned. Here are the things I've learned about who I am, what it means to be king, what it means to hold power. Imagine if David had gone, this is what I've learned about God's grace in the midst of it. This is what I want you to learn about it as my boys, as my sons. Extraordinarily awkward conversation. What a powerful conversation. I wonder again, how good are we at having those conversations with the people around us about owning the mistakes that we've made? I say this. I've made such whopping mistakes. I don't want to see you make the same mistakes. Because all it does is bring pain. All it does is bring hurt. All it does is damage people all around us. Imagine if David had spoken out before. And instead of being, hey, you know, I'm King David and I vanquished, you know, I vanquished these people and I vanquished these people and I'm the king and even Saul can stand up. Yeah. Imagine if instead of just delighting in his glory, he was able to have the conversations about his disasters. And then lastly, there's Absalom. And I always think about Absalom. You know, he wasn't complicit. He didn't make it happen. It wasn't his idea. He didn't help. He didn't say, like, he didn't know about it until after it happened. Like, there's, there's nothing he could have done to stop it. 
But this is when you realise that the way we respond to things like this when they happen is absolutely critical. If when Absalom came and saw her, all he'd done was say, come here, gave him a great big hug and held her while she went. How different would that have felt for her? So just being safe for a moment. Imagine if he'd have said, what do you want to do next? <coughs> what can I do to make this better? I can't rewrite history. What can I do? What would make it better? Do we talk to Dad? Do we talk to Amnon? Do you want to come and stay for a while? What can I do? You know, again, working with survivors of domestic abuse, I've discovered that one of the things that has often hurt them more than anything else has been the response of people when they finally had the courage to speak up. They might have spoken to a church leader or somebody friend and they're not believed oh that can't possibly be true not that person I mean, know them they always seem so lovely they're so funny they never do that or they're told to go back and forgive which forgiveness is always a good thing it's always a right thing on one level but it doesn't mean you go back and put yourself back in harm's way or they're told you know the bible says you can be like Jesus in your suffering that's not very helpful either there's so many things we can do that aren't necessarily helpful, but sitting and listening, being with and believing, saying, do you know what, I don't understand, I don't even know what the answers are, but I'll sit with you whilst we work it out. That is so empowering, and it's so reassuring to go, I'm not alone anymore. Somebody's with me. Actually, Absalom could have made such a difference. So I want us to have a bit of a think about us and where we go, because the session is called Being Advocate, and you might not be obvious, that's why, yeah? But it's because, actually, we can make a difference, actually, in the midst of these. And I think my thing's going to come up in a very weird order here, so I'm just going to bring it. See, I'm going to bring all these down. Here, in the black, are all the things that we see in this story. We see a woman objectified, we see people colluding, we see people enabling, we see people silencing, we see people covering up, minimising and disempowering. Now, we're not going to do those things. But how can we find places? Where can we make sure that we're ready if the moment comes to be able to show honour to people all around us? Where can we find spaces where we can speak up and stand against something? One of the things that we talk about Restored a lot is that actually within the church, this has become such a taboo topic. But the fact that stories like, Amnon, like, like this are in the Bible, and there's a few of them. There's Amnon and Tamar. There's two or three or four different rapes that happen within the Bible. Some of them are absolutely brutal, awful stories. Now, they're not stories to tell in the family service ever. But those stories are in the Bible for a purpose. They're in there for a reason. And when we ignore them, and, you know, you don't even find them, you don't, you don't find them in, you don't find them in sermon series, you skip over them, we, we go past them, because they're awkward and they're a bit embarrassing, and, oh, frankly, I just don't even know how to, don't even know how to tackle them. But if we don't talk about them, How's anybody meant to know that those stories are in there? How's anybody meant to know that God cares? You see, these stories tell us that God sees, God knows, and he really cares. He really he cares so much, he chose to put these stories in here because they matter. And it recognizes, it shows that God said, Do you know what, violence against women, this kind of stuff has been going on for centuries, millennia. And it's still going on. And right back, there's a story in Judges 19, particularly horrific. But it finishes with these words when God's people recognise what's happened after this terrible murder of this woman. 
And God's people come together. And the first thing that they say is this. They go, we must speak up and we must do something. Now, that verse is extraordinary. <laughs> yeah, I bet none of you ever even know it's there. We must speak up and we must do something about this terrible violence against this woman. I guess this call that carries across the millennia, and we miss it because we don't go to these stories. God cares. God wants us to be part of this. How can we find ways of standing up? It might be as simple as praying for victims of domestic abuse sometimes. It might be as simple as choosing to support a charity that works with women, you know, you know, as a, as a ministry. What can we do? It might be bigger than that. It might be doing a whole sermon. It might be choosing to run a project within your church. It could be all kinds of things. But what can we do to stand against abuse of power in all of its forms? Where can we go? What can we do? How can we give a voice to victims and survivors? How can we make sure that we don't speak for them? We speak with them. We listen to them. Now, there's a verse in the Bible that talks about using your voice for those who have no voice. But even better, like the way that works the best is they might not feel they can stand up and speak, but if you become their mouthpiece, you listen. What do you need? What do you want? How can I speak for you? Really critically, it says we need to expose. I think in a church sometimes we want to cover things up because we're frightened of what people will think. And we're nervous of people finding out that church is as messy as outside. But it is. And actually, what we're called to be as followers of Jesus, made in his image, is to be bearers of light. Like the light of the world, that's who we represent. And we need to stop giving the darkness a place to hide, but bring God's light and shine it in. And it will be messy and it will be awkward and there will be fallout, but it will be better in the end. Because we're rooting out injustice, we're rooting out evil, and we're saying, not here, not in this place, because that's not how we do it. And then we can empathise and we can empower those who have had everything stripped away. We can step in and make sure that we're ready, because that's how we're an advocate. That's how we step up and go, I'm going to speak on behalf of those who cannot speak. And then I'm going to help them be able to speak for themselves. I'm going to help them to find their voice. I'm going to help them to be able to do it themselves. Because it matters so much. Because otherwise all we're doing is that surface level stuff still. We're putting on the programs and we're inviting people in and we're doing this, but we're not dealing with the deep-rooted stuff that is so messy and so hard to deal with, and yet it's actually what sits at the heart of everybody. They need to have it dealt with. And so I want to challenge you, really. With that verse in Judges 19, verse 31, you can go and read it yourself. It's a horrible story. Maybe just jump there. But actually, I want to challenge you to speak up and do something when we see things going on in the world that aren't right, to stop being too British because it's too easy, but to step up and to step in and to say, hey, are you okay? Do you need to help? Do you want to talk sometime? Not to force yourself or make them speak, but to also challenge injustice where we see it and to say, this isn't okay. Maybe you should just go for a run and sort yourself out. Whatever it looks like. And so I want to finish by praying. I'm going to kind of like commission you to go out and change the world. One woman at a time and see how we go. So Father, I just want to thank you that actually you recognise some of the dark things that go on at the heart of men and women. And you recognise, and Father, we just stop for a minute to recognise that you see everything. And there are moments when it feels like an extraordinary comfort to know that wherever we go, you're there before us. And that you know all the thoughts in our mind. But actually, it's also quite daunting to remember that you know every thought in our mind. And you see everything. And there's no place that we can hide. But actually, we choose to draw the comfort. We choose to draw the comfort to lean into that and to ask us to be your ambassadors into the dark places. 
to root out injustice, to bring your peace, to bring your rule of justice into the world all around us, to say no more to the abuse of men, women and girls, to say no more to people thinking they're entitled to everything that they just want, to live a different way, to show a different way, but to stand actively against it when we see people who are just taking and controlling and demanding and diminishing and minimising and silencing. And we choose to step in and to give voice to those who have long been ignored and to find places and ways in our communities, in our church, in our families maybe, in our workplaces, to help those who've been overlooked to be seen, to be heard, to be known, to feel and to know the love of God and of us as your representatives. So Jesus, I commission these women as they go out. I pray that you would empower them, that you would make them bold, that you would make them brave, that you would make them wiser serpents and discerning, and that they would know how to bring your light and life into the darkest of places. Amen.